The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks looking to keep that win streak alive despite an outspoken and very hawkish Jay Powell. But Guggenheim Scott Minard is keeping his expectations for stocks extremely low, at least for now. Overseas, a nation in mourning over the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, what a new chapter for the monarchy means for the United Kingdom, especially during a time of great economic uncertainty. Now, sticking with Europe, energy ministers holding an emergency meeting today to discuss the energy crisis and measures to mitigate record high prices, plus the Biden administration worried that prices on the home front are heading back higher, weighing yet another release from the key strategic petroleum reserve. And then later on, new details on Elon Musk, Twitter, and massive payments to a whistleblower. It is Friday, September 9th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good Friday morning. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. And let's kick off this morning with stocks looking to keep that recent win streak alive and build on two days of gains. It's not a lot, but it's a start. Futures right now are strong and right now just about near session highs. If you check out what's happening, the major averages right now, the S&P is currently implied higher by roughly 30 points. The Dow Jones higher by 235 points and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 118. So fairly solid in the green now for those three major indices. Now, all of them are on pace to snap three straight weeks worth of losses. In the bond market, yields right now, they have been trending higher, nearer to medium term. But if you look right now, you'll see a little bit of stability here. The 10-year note yield just falling ever so slightly back to 3.28%. The two-year note yield still hovering right around 3.48%. And the 30-year long bond, 3.45% there. In energy... Oil prices right now are, you can see here, at least moving a little bit to the upside, trying to bounce back. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, $85.08. That's up $1.5, at least 1.8% gains there. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, $1.75 to the upside, now breaking above $90 again, $90.89 there, 2% gains there, and nat gas, 2% gains there as well. This is all, by the way, remember, we're trying to figure out whether there's weekly losses in play here. Our Bob Gasoline, a gasoline future, now on pace for four straight down weeks. And in cryptocurrencies, we are seeing Bitcoin and Ether prices moving to the upside. Bitcoin prices now up 7%, back above 20000 20708 Ethereum, $1,701, up 4%. And some of the smaller tokens and coins on the move to the upside as well. 
Around the world, you've got green arrows in Asia, with Hong Kong surging more than 2% to end the week. You can see there are 2.5% gains. The Shanghai Composite up nearly 1%. Let's spin that globe around the world to where we are in Europe. Very much green there. The FTSE 100 up about 1.5%. The CAC in France, similar percentage gains there, as well as the DAX in Germany. So let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Pippa Stevens is here with those. Good morning, Pippa. Good morning, Dom. The Biden administration is reportedly weighing an executive order to screen and possibly restrict U.S. investment in cutting-edge technology development in China. According to Bloomberg, the order could come in the next couple months and would potentially block outbound investment by American companies and individual investors. No comment from the White House yet. An Iraqi end to a wild week for digital world acquisition, the SPAC tied to former President Trump's Truth Social. The company failing late yesterday to gain the necessary votes to delay its planned merger with Truth Social parent Trump Media and Technology Group. Digital World had been pushing shareholders to vote for a year-long delay this week amid growing regulatory scrutiny. And the clock is ticking on a nationwide rail strike that could cost the U.S. economy some $2 billion a year. As of this morning, five of the 12 unions representing 21,000 workers have reached voluntary agreements with the railroads. But ahead of the September 16th deadline, if a series of deals are not reached, 115,000 workers could be heading to the picket lines, straining an already stressed supply chain. Dom? All right, Pippa Stevens, thank you very much for those headlines there. Looking now to add to yesterday's gains now for the stock market, despite ongoing macro headwinds, Guggenheim Partners Global Chief Investment Officer Scott Miner joining Closing Bell just yesterday to discuss his grimmer market outlook. I'm thinking somewhere between 3,000 and let's broadly say 3,000 and 3,400. We'll, we'll figure out the bottom when we get there. But, uh, you know, I would say uh, at that point I'm a buyer uh, because if you believe everything I just said, if you believe that the Fed will pause, uh, you know, it's going to be supportive uh, for risk assets and, uh, and the seasonals turn around. Um, you know, seasonals turn positive in November through March, actually through June. So uh, the old adage of buy in May, go, you know, or sell in May, go away, come again at Labor Day. Sell in May, go away, come again in Labor Day. Bill Stone, chief investment officer at the Glenview Trust Company. Paul Kim, CEO at Simplify ETFs. Those are the two gentlemen that you see on your screen right there. You heard Scott Miner's comments, and maybe we'll start with you, Bill. Is this a scenario right now building up in the markets where we could retest those lows? We've been asking it among all of our guests for a couple of weeks now, and we're right in the middle. Yeah, I mean, we certainly could. I guess I'm a little more optimistic in the short run just because we've had, you know, first of all, short-term yields of real, well, actually pushed up to their new highs which just really tells me that we've priced in a lot of Fed hiking. Uh, in fact, you know, we're back to having essentially priced in 75 basis points in September. It's not going to get worse than that, um, at least here in the short term. And you have a, a, you know, kind of what you just heard, a ton of negative sentiment. That doesn't mean we don't eventually test those lows again. I, I think no one really knows because the fight against inflation is probably the, you know, the pivotal decision on this. And that is really hard to call. Paul, if you take a look at how investors have been have been behaving, at least over the course of the last couple of weeks, as we've seen this recovery 
off the lows and kind of like this move to the highs in the last couple of months here off the June lows. Have there been places specifically that you've been seeing more investor activity, more interest in in perhaps picking a bottom? Uh, Certainly seeing it, certainly seeing a lot more appetite for strategies that rely more on income, uh, may, may rely more on options, things that avoid basically duration risk, right? So getting out of bonds and into alternatives, into other ways of generating returns, um, those have certainly done well. Managed futures of a certain category and alternatives have seen a lot of activity and flows, uh, really decade-long type interest. Um, and so you're seeing investors trying to zig as the market zagging, particularly in bonds. And I think that's really been the basis of the investment moves year to date is, is the market pricing in the significant tightening from central banks. Um, but we have yet to see the other shoe drop on earnings and sort of more fundamentals beyond just interest rate. So, so Paul, if I could follow up on that point there, you mentioned some of these strategies that are getting more interest right now. You mentioned things like managed futures, alternative strategies, income strategies. That doesn't scream just putting your money in an index into, into the Qs or the S&P 500. Do you feel as though there's a shift back now towards more of that active management or, 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 or alpha or outperformance seeking, if you will, rather than just passive or index investing? I think you're seeing people look for, again, alternatives, which tend to be more active than not. Um, and, and really, the punchline is trying to get out of the big, common, long-only asset classes, right? So passive equities, which discount a lot of interest rate risks, um, particularly in technology stocks, um, and bonds, bonds in particular. And so if you're moving out of those two big categories, what do you have left? Alternatives, right? And things that sort of don't rely on either of those two markets continuing to go up. Okay, Bill, I'm going to give the last word to you here. If you take a look at the way things are shaping up now, there's been a debate for weeks about, you know, whether inflation is peaked or not. I'm not asking you to make a call, but in this kind of environment, what is the strategy for how you approach this last half of the year and specifically the last quarter? It should be seasonally strong after we get through a volatile September, right? It should be. You're right. I mean, you're coming into the point once we get past the midterm elections, those type of things. Uh, actually, that's also another, you know, typically better time. I do think headline inflation seems to have peaked, at least, you know, I'll say for now because you never know. But I, I, I think we're good there. I think what's going to be more important next week is looking underneath the surface to see if we've gotten any sort of relief on some of those stickier parts of wages and, and uh, you know, the rents. I, that's going to be harder. And I think that's where it, it gets difficult. Um, but, you know, hey, the first step is to get the headline to come off the peak. And, and I think we're moving there. Bill, one last question to you. Do you think that if we get a softer than expected inflation print on the producer and consumer level next week, that the Fed may not raise by 75 basis points? I guess it's always possible. I'm going to go with 75 no matter what for two reasons. So one is the ECB went 75 yesterday. So, you know, I think they've got kind of clear sailing. Not that that would have changed their mind, but I think it makes it easier. And second of all, because, you know, the Wall Street Journal article on Monday, and I'm guessing they, you know, that the Fed said that to them, uh, talking about 75 being likely. Once you already have the market pricing in 75, why would you take it, right? Like, they're going to likely take that. That's not going to upset anything too horribly because it's already priced in. All right. Bill Stone, Paul Kim. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Have a nice weekend, guys. Thank you so much. Now we turn to a nation in mourning. 
following the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest-serving monarch in U.K. history. Our Jeff Cutmore is live outside Buckingham Palace in London. He joins us now. Jeff, what's the feeling like there? It has to be a profound sense of sadness for many folks out in the United Kingdom right now. No, absolutely, Dominic. There is a somber and a, a very sober mood here outside Buckingham Palace. Uh, throughout the morning, you've seen people gradually drifting in, gathering in front of the gates of the palace, bringing flowers to leave at the gates, also lighting candles, I guess, as they want to express their condolences to the royal family and just mark a very important turning point for the UK. I mean, this is ultimately the end of the second Elizabethan era. We move now into the monarchy of King Charles III. And of course, immediately on Queen Elizabeth II's death, age 96, uh, King Charles came into being, King Charles III. Uh, we now expect that uh, as the Queen died at Balmoral, her body will move to St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, where she will lie in state briefly there before being transported down to London, where she will go to Westminster Abbey. Uh, King Charles III will fly down from Scotland. He will come to London and he will come here to Buckingham Palace, where he will meet the new Prime Minister, of course, uh, Liz Truss. And, of course, this is the, the remarkable thing about this week, because it was already a week of transition for the people of the United Kingdom, because we have a new Prime Minister, effectively Queen Elizabeth's 15th Prime Minister. She was, of course, the Queen during the era of Winston Churchill as Prime Minister. So it just shows you how long her reign ultimately was. So at the beginning of this week, she effectively introduced uh, Liz Truss to the British people and uh, allowed her or invited her to form a new government, which is, I think, why everybody is a little bit surprised, given that we saw pictures earlier this week of the Queen meeting the new Prime Minister, that her death came so quickly. And I think Liz Truss summed it up for everyone here in the UK as she commented on the Queen's death. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. A new era for the United Kingdom. Uh, we are waiting for final details on how long really the period of mourning is going to be and exactly what the procedure will be for the Queen's funeral. But those details are coming together and we expect Prince Charles, or should I say King Charles III, to sign off on the plans today with the UK government. Back to you. There will be a lot of scrutiny and, 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 and eyes on the United Kingdom in the next 10 days, given all of the, the festivities and all of the celebrations and all of, the, of course, the mornings that will be happening across the country there. Jeff Cutmore, we'll see you later on throughout the course of the day here. We'll have much more on this story throughout the course of the hour here on Worldwide Exchange. When we come back on the show, European energy ministers are holding an emergency meeting today to discuss the energy crisis, the Nord Stream shutdown, and measures to mitigate those record-high energy prices. We are live in Brussels with an update there next. Plus, a multi-million dollar hush payment 
revealed in Elon Musk's bid to cancel his $44 billion deal for Twitter. We've got those details ahead. And then later on, much more on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II and what it means for a nation at an economic crossroads. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. European Union energy ministers are meeting in Brussels today for what they are calling an extraordinary summit to discuss emergency measures to mitigate high energy prices. This is coming just days after Russia said its Nord Stream 1 pipeline will remain shut down indefinitely. Aneta Weisbach joins us now from the summit live in Brussels. Aneta, how, how key is this for European leaders to get some kind of a plan to tackle these high prices? It's super important for the economy because they're actually comparing the situation right now to potentially the worst economic crisis since the Second World War. We have first reports that uh, energy-intensive companies do cut back on their production, steelmakers, but also commodity uh, producers are reducing their production in Europe because of those record high energy prices. And we're not only talking about gas prices. Gas prices actually came back a little bit surprisingly I have to say but we are also now talking about electricity prices they are at record highs and this is the reason one of the biggest reasons here for those energy ministers to gather to bring those prices back because it will be a big drag on the economy and it also might mean that we're going to see energy energy rationing throughout the winter period. I briefly caught up with the German uh, uh, economy minister Robert Habeck here on the ground in Brussels and I asked him what he expects from that meeting. Take a listen. This uh, council is about finding a market mechanism, a market mechanism to reduce the prices, so that the merit order effect is not, not, not um, spoiling the prices for the cheap energies. And we are in a good way doing exactly that. So essentially, the the electricity prices are at record highs. They need to come down in order to avoid a very, very serious recession here in Europe. Aneta, uh, if, if we talk about some of the plans that are, that are being conceived right now, these, these are very short-term plans to tackle the very immediate effects of these high energy prices. 
Is there any sense that these energy yep. ministers will address some of the longer term issues with energy infrastructure and sourcing to wean the continent off of Russian oil and gas? If this meeting here is about emergency measures, they need to have a very short-term plan in place. They want to come to a conclusion at, uh, at the latest by mid, um, yeah, I think by Wednesday next week. So we'll look into liquidity measures as the most likely outcome from that meeting. So throwing more money at utilities, throwing more money at the consumer. But of course, you're right. We need to have a medium-term um, solution as well. And here they're looking into a decoupling from the gas price and the electricity price because currently they are intertwined. The gas price is more or less dictating the electricity price in Europe. But of course, it's, as always with Europe, it's very difficult. There are 27 member states and they all have some sort of a different energy mix, some sort of a different energy system, and they all have different interests. The French, they want to have more support for their nuclear energy. The Germans, more support for their renewable energy. So I think it will be a very very tricky one to actually really transform the European energy system and also the way how to source gas from various uh, countries because clearly gas was seen as the transitionary um, yeah, power in that whole transformation of the economy towards more renewable energy. And now with no gas coming from Russia, they have a serious problem. Annette Weisbach, live in Brussels with the latest on the European energy crisis. Thank you very much. Still on deck for the show, a new playbook for the NFL as the 2022 season kicks off. It just happened last night. The Bills smoked the Rams. The new trends, changes, and investor implications. All of that happening when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, quick check of the futures right now. Solid green across the board here. The S&P implied higher by 30 points. The Dow Jones 235 points higher. And the Nasdaq 123 points higher as the opening bell. The NFL season kicking off last night with the Buffalo Bills taking on the Los Angeles Rams. The Vegas oddmakers are favoring the Bills to win the Super Bowl this year. And they showed why. Making a statement by beating up on the defending Super Bowl champs. 31-10. Bills quarterback Josh Allen throwing three touchdowns. And he ran for another one. The NFL is undergoing a lot of changes this season, of course, from the expansion of sports betting to more states and more ways to watch the game from just about anywhere. Streaming is going to be a huge part of that. Let's bring in Patrick Risch, director of the sports business program at Washington University in St. Louis. Patrick, we turn to you for many things sports business. Let's talk about the betting angle first. So many folks wanting this kickoff season to kind of go off. This is the first year we'll see a huge amount of betting. Just how much should we expect? Well, Dom, it's, it's going to increase fan engagement, that's for sure. And that's one of the reasons why not only the NFL, but all these leagues want to see legalized gambling. It's not a question of if, but a question of when and how most of these states are going to legalize. We know that there's already 31 states that have legalized it. And you talk about putting these sports books 
in venues. I think you mentioned that Arizona has a sports book in their venue. You're going to see this trend as well, Dom. Again, it all goes back to engagement. We've seen a slight reduction of fans going to the venues. This is a way for teams and leagues to try to bring fans off their seats, create that FOMO, fear of missing out, and and get engaged in the action at the venues. And, And speaking of, I mean, engagement and FOMO, there are increasingly more ways to watch football now, and streaming is a big part of that. I can now, I mean, we were already watching it in some ways on our phones and tablets before, but this is now big. We, we got a lot of games that are going to be streamed online these days. How does that change the dynamic for the NFL? Well, it's certainly a compliment. It's not meant to be a substitute. It's meant to be a compliment because you want to reach fans where they are, and Dom, in particular, the younger fans, because that's the lifeblood for future revenue streams for the NFL. So you've got to reach those fans where they are, and those fans, the millennials, the Gen Zs, the alpha gens, they are more likely to stream than, say, people of our age. So and it's crazy to see what the numbers have done. Traditional uh, uh, viewership consumption of ESPN traditional was 100 million subscribers back in 2011. Now it's down to 76 million, whereas on the streaming side, that started off at about 2 million three or four years ago. Now it's up to 22 million. So you've got to meet the fans, especially the younger fans, where they are, and they are streaming. I mean, it's multi-billions of dollars, Patrick, that we're talking about with regard to some of these streaming rights that are going to happen over the next several years. And speaking of the multi-billions of dollars, team valuations, they just continue to keep going higher and higher. What exactly? I mean, the Cowboys are going to be the, the richest team in the world, and every other franchise in the NFL is seeing their kind of moves rise up with that tide. What exactly can take down valuations, if anything? Well, the only thing that's going to potentially take it down, Dom, is if you have a reduction in media rights, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. Media rights have jumped last year, last March. You saw a huge increase, somewhere between 40 and 60% from the old deal in national media rights. And so this starting next year, you're going to see those national media rights be between 10 and $11 billion per year. And so that's going to escalate the amount of revenue that teams can generate and therefore the value of these teams. All right. Patrick Risch with the kickoff of the NFL season. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thanks, Dom. All right. Coming up on the show, unusual options action as September looks to wrap up its first week on a high note. RBC's Amy Wu Silverman is coming up next. One week in. And September already bucking its stock-sinking reputation, futures are solidly higher ahead of the opening bell. The end of an era for a nation as the world mourns the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, what it means for a country already facing an economic crossroads. Plus, the week's biggest insider buys and one executive that's actually buying into strength on what's been a down year for most stocks. It's Friday, September 9th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan. Let's get this half hour started with a check on U.S. futures on this Friday morning with Wall Street trying to snap a three-week losing streak. And right now, the Dow futures are implying an open that's about just about 7,246 points right there, roughly higher. 32 points higher to the upside there. The implied open for the Nasdaq is up about 1% as well. So solid gains overall for the futures markets. Let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Pippa Stevens is here with those. Pippa. 
Hey, Dom, the Biden administration is reportedly looking for new ways to head off a feared spike in oil prices prices later this year, including an additional release from the country's strategic petroleum reserves. According to reports, officials are warning of a surge in prices coming in December when EU sanctions on Russian energy supplies go into effect. Talks are still preliminary and no decision has been made yet. And Elon Musk's lawyers say Twitter paid a whistleblower $7 million to stay quiet after raising numerous questions around operations issues inside the company. The disclosure from Team Musk comes as the Tesla's CEO continues to discredit Twitter and push to terminate his $44 billion purchase of the company. Twitter representatives yesterday declined to comment about the payment. And T-Mobile authorizing up to $14 billion in stock buybacks through September 20th to 23rd. The the repurchases are expected to be financed with cash and proceeds from debt sales or other borrowing mechanism. T-Mobile shares up about 28 percent this year. Dom? All right, Pippa, thank you very much for those headlines. Let's get back to the markets now. As September, a month notorious for being bad for equities, looks to close out the week with gains across the board. Joining me now is RBC Capital Markets equity derivatives strategist Amy Wu Silverman. Uh, I mean, Amy, this is the whole idea of September being one of those volatile downside months. We're not seeing it as much right now, but that might also mean because we've already had a very volatile August. What's the forecast in your mind look like? Yeah, you know, good morning. It's interesting because we've kind of been saying that volatility has really misbehaved overall this year. So, you know, if it's going to not continue the playbook, it might as well, I guess, do that in September and October. But look, if you look at the last 10 years, Dom, uh, VIX is supposed to rise in both September and October, and often it does in August, even though I think most investors don't think of it uh, as August as a, a high volatility month. And then, you know, there are several catalysts we look to that we think can jumpstart it, including analyst days, conference season, and obviously the beginning of earnings, which happens in early October. So if the, we're showing the VIX right now for good reason, because you mentioned how volatility is, is relatively muted. 23 is roughly the long term average for where the S&P 500 volatility should be right now. Is that a good or a bad sign in, in your mind? Look, uh, a VIX of 23 is still high. And I think most investors kind of have this psychological 20 barrier on the VIX, at least during the pandemic era. But, you know, we've seen spikes of the VIX to 80 that happened during the pandemic. And the question, I think, is, you know, in this new environment uh, for volatility, and by that I mean, you know, the last 10 years prior, we had a very, very different rate regime than we are going to have going forward. I think that you do continue to have this bar at 20 and volatility does float higher in particular, as you start to get more data points uh, from the September FOMC, from inflation, and as people start to adjust to those, you know, we think it does kickstart and follow the playbook for September and October. You will continue to see a higher volatility level. You, you know, Amy, one of the things I, I know you look at a lot of options traders look at is something called skew, right? They look at the relative price of call options and similar downside or upside protection put options. Is there anything that we can glean right now for the price of options as to whether or not there is more demand for upside protection or downside protection? 
Yeah, that that is a really great question because skew is essentially, I would say, our barometer for demand for downside protection. And that metric on a historical basis, and this is for the S&P 500, is still relatively low on a five-year basis. If you look at the SDEX and you look at that percentile, it's still quite low compared to history. Obviously, that encapsulates the time that we had the pandemic. Um, And one reason for that, Dom, is unfortunately, you know, hedges have actually not worked out this year. Part of that is, you know, path dependency. And part of that is, we, you know, we did have this drawdown, but then we had this big mid-June rally. So if you actually look at what has worked out this year, it has been put selling. But of course, it's very difficult to tell investors to do something like that in an environment where we have aggressive rate hikes as well. Now, uh, before we let you go, Amy, one of the things that you, you often look at is kind of where you see some of the heat developing in certain parts of the market. Are there certain sectors, industry groups, that could see more volatility given what you're seeing in the options market right now? Yeah, I would say some that are not too surprising is you're starting to see more uncertainty in Europe, uh, given the gas situation, um, as well as in Asia than you are compared to the U.S. So that's on a geographical basis. On a sector basis, it's interesting to me because we continue to see the small cap, the Russell 2000 volatility low relative to tech. Um, And a lot of people, you know, are questioning whether or not that's overdue to turn. You also see that in consumer, which, again, I don't think is that surprising as we head into a conference and then you do see some negative pre-announcements in the consumer space. All right. Amy Wu Silverman at RBC, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. You too. All right. Time now for your weekly exclusive insider buying segment where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level executives and board members with their own money. For that, we send it out to our own Brian Sullivan. Thanks, Tom. And though I'm not there every day, we are still going to try to bring you Worldwide Exchange's exclusive weekly insider buying segment, highlighting the top five stocks that are getting the most buying by their corporate executives. And a reminder, these are not stock buybacks. These are individuals buying their own company stocks with their own money. The data, as always, comes with our thanks to Verity Platforms. And we're going to count you down in reverse order, five to one. So let's go. The fifth most insider buying this week, a new name, Douglas Emmett Incorporated, There's a $507,000 buy by a board member, and this follows two other insider buys just days earlier at the California-based Real Estate Investment Trust. Number four, another new name, Primo Water, the CEO buying $509,000 worth of the 65-year-old Tampa-based beverage company. Stock number three, a much more well-known name, The Hog, Harley-Davidson. CEO Jochen Zeitz sniping up $1 million worth of Hog, Verity Data notes that he has got a very strong record of as a buyer as a stock. And this is only, the, by the way, the only name on the list this week that is higher on the year. It's up about 4%. Not great, but outperforming the market. All right, now to the top two insider buys of the week. Stock number two, yet another new name to our insider buying list. This is Hamilton Lane Incorporated. It's a little-known Pennsylvania-based investment manager, but it's not a small company. They got more than $800 billion under management. The vice chairman there buying $1.04 million worth. His first insider buys, November of 2018. Shares are down 32% this year. And the most insider buying of the week, it is that travel company Booking Holding. The chairman buying $1.8 million, which adds to even two bigger buys back in August, which Verity notes were the first buys at Booking Holdings in 18 years. Wow. Certainly a name to watch. So there you go. Your top five insider buys this week, Douglas Emmett, 
Primo Water, Harley-Davidson, Hamilton Lane, and Booking Holdings, all names to watch going forward. And a programming note, we're going to talk more about some of these stocks today at 1 p.m. on the exchange, so be sure to tune in for that as well. And with that, I will send it back to you, Dom. All right, thanks very much, Brian. We'll see you at 1 p.m. Eastern time today. And remember, this is a segment you will only see here on Worldwide Exchange or on CNBC Pro for subscribers there. Be sure to sign up today. Coming up on the show, the social and economic road ahead for a nation in mourning following the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. But first, as we head out to break, some of this morning's big money movers. Check out shares of DocuSign surging as the e-signature company posting second quarter earnings and revenues that topped forecasts. DocuSign is also raising its guidance for billings or subscription revenues this year as well. Those shares up 17 percent. Zscaler also jumping. The cybersecurity company reporting better than expected fourth quarter results and billings came in well above estimates. Zscaler's outlook for the current quarter and full year is also above analyst expectations. Those shares up 14 percent. And then finally, RH, the retailer formerly known as Restoration Hardware, reporting second quarter earnings that beat forecast. But the furniture and home goods chain is trimming its sales outlook for the year, saying expects demand to ease amid the slowdown in the housing market. RH shares just about flat in the pre-market trade right now. Welcome back. Today, a nation mourns the loss of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the longest-serving monarch in the history of the United Kingdom, spending 70 years on the throne there. As we reflect on the end of the Elizabethan era, part two, what does her passing mean for a country already on the brink of an economic crisis with so much uncertainty still ahead? Joining me now is Luffy Siddiqui, visiting professor in practice at the London School of Economics, uh, uh, Professor Siddiqui, this is a very interesting way to look at this particular event, the end of the Elizabethan era, part two. What does this now mean for a country at an economic crossroads, especially with the energy crisis that's in play? That's right, Dominic. Thanks for having me. And uh, look, we're gutted. It's a hugely tragic event for the country. And very selfishly for the country, it couldn't have come at a worse time. The Queen was universally loved throughout the country, as she was around the world. And she was loved for what she symbolized and what she personified. Uh, And, you know, the country was already feeling beleaguered. Um, This feels like a bit of a kick in the stomach for a country that's many ways already on its knees. Uh, The economy, as you know, uh, has been in a, a blue funk. We're practically in a stagflation domestically. There's growing imbalance externally, and and this tragic news weighs heavy on on sentiment from here on. You know, she she had a probing wit as well. She famously asked economists during a visit to the London School of Economics in 2008, how come nobody saw the the financial crisis or the the causes she championed? Uh, She, uh, for example, was a patron to the United World College in Wales, where I'm a trustee, uh, promoting international understanding so she'll be heavily missed by uh, by all around, by everyone all around. Professor, I, I, one of the things that, that that has been talked about so much in the in the hours since the Queen's passing is just how much she has seen during during her reign, how, how much she has presided over in 70 years on the throne. This is basically a woman who presided over the makings of what we know as the modern United Kingdom today. What yes. exactly then? 
does King Charles now have to do, along with newly minted Prime Minister Liz Truss, to get the United Kingdom out of this funk, as you call it, for the United Kingdom and its economy? There are some things that will be very hard for King, King Charles to uh, replicate. You know, stability, continuity, for example, that comes with time. Um, British society is more fractious uh, today than it was, let's say, a decade ago. Politics is more polarized, less stable. You mentioned her 70-year reign. She's had 15 prime ministers in that period, uh, four of whom uh, happened to be in just the last six years. The State of the Union is weaker. We have a nationalist party uh, governing Scotland now for over a decade. Uh, Northern Ireland is in a different place since Brexit. So uh, the challenges are great. And then particularly on the economic front, you have uh, contraction in GDP uh, right now. There's huge energy inflation. Uh, and the currency, uh, it's weakened more than the euro has against the dollar this year. The external balance, the deficit uh, is even wider. In terms of what's required, I think the, the new uh, government really needs to rise above political ideology. And this is true for the government as well as the opposition. We seem to be stuck in this binary of privatization versus nationalism, Thatcherism versus socialism. And there really needs to be much more of a pragmatic, comprehensive, grand strategy. There is no industrial policy that I know of. There isn't a coherent way of piecing together the various initiatives, whether it's a green transition, leveling up, skills training, visa, immigration, all of these. Because um, in the absence of that, you don't bring in long-term investments. And you need long-term investments, particularly from outside of the country, to be able to bridge that external deficit that the country has always run uh, and all the investments that are required. Professor Lutfi Siddiqui at the London School of Economics, thank you very much. Uh, of course, our, our condolences to everybody in the UK on this. We'll have much more on this throughout the course of the day here on CNBC. We appreciate it. Thank you. On deck for the show, getting set for your trading day ahead with Tiffany McGee and strategies she says can't miss right now. Can't miss. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Here's what Wall Street will be watching to close out the week. We've got earnings from Kroger to kick off the day, followed by Fed speeches from Chicago Fed President Charles Evans, also Fed Governor Christopher Waller, and Kansas City Fed President Esther George. Also of note, the new iPhone is available for pre-order starting today, all four models of that so-called iPhone 14. We'll take a look now at what we see for the markets. The S&P 500 is in an interesting part of a range. And that is to say, if you look at the highs that we saw over the last couple of weeks and then the lows that we saw in June, we're pretty much just a hair above the middle of that trading range right now. So at 4,006 for the S&P 500, we are roughly now at this kind of middle crossroads. Now, how we got there over the course of the past week with this positivity, if we can maintain it today, has specifically been tilted towards a couple of key sectors. That is consumer discretionary and the financials. Rising interest rates playing a part in that financials discussion and a little bit more perhaps bounce back in terms of optimism about the American consumer playing into that discretionary story there. That sector up 3.8 percent. Financials up 4 percent right now. And the energy sector spider just about flat over the last week. It's been a real laggard as concerns about the economy have come up now. Now check out what's happening with Apple, Google and Tesla. That discretionary story, by the way 
driven a lot by Tesla's outperformance over the last week. It's up 9% right there. So keep an eye on those mega cap stocks. For more on that trading day ahead, let's bring in Tiffany McGee, Pivotal Advisor, CEO and Chief Investment Officer. She's also a CNBC contributor. So, Tiffany, as you look at this kind of market in this range right now, do you feel that we test the lows again or can we head back towards those highs that we saw over the last month or so? Listen, I, I think the, the really important thing, Don, is to really understand that we are really in the midst of a lot of volatility. And so I was, I was listening as your earlier guests, you were asking them about inflation. Has it peaked? Also markets, you know, what does that mean for the volatility? Um, are we at lows? I know, you know, for the past three weeks, we've been on this, this losing streak, but for the past uh, two days, we've been really ticking up. And so I think the most important thing, uh, you know, for, for investors to really understand is that they need a tactical strategy. So a lot of investors, when they first begin investing, they get their asset allocation together, they get their strategy together, um, really based on their risk tolerance. And so what this really is, is your, is your, is your strategic allocation. That's kind of like your, your basic 60-40, if that's appropriate for you. But what do you do in the short term, right? And so that is really your tactical asset allocation. And how do you kind of play these moves? And so to kind of circle back to your, to your question, uh, I think that we do continue to see volatility ahead. Uh, you know, Powell has been very clear that uh, the Fed is really not going to move. Remember, they have this dual mandate. They're not going to move until they see a significant decline in the inflation reading. Not all of the signs that we're talking about has inflation peaked. All I'm really paying attention to is has inflation gone down enough for the Fed to move? And we're not going to see that until we see these consistent readings. So that's kind of where we are. So really getting your, your tactical asset allocation together to figure out Depending on your particular um, your, your particular risk tolerance and your particular situation, what you're going to do in the short term in terms of these moves. All right. So if you look at that kind of strategic versus tactical decision, there has to be at at some point, no matter how you feel, a higher conviction relative feeling to others. Do you think there are any trades out there that warrant kind of like that real focus uh, of your money right now? Yeah, so I can tell you what we're doing from a tactical perspective, what we've kind of been doing all year. So first of all, adding income. Uh, you, you guys talked about bonds a little bit earlier. I think that you know bonds, uh, bond yields are going to go higher. Um, so that's that's an option. Also, you also stole a little bit of my thunder and talked a little bit about uh, alternatives. You can get some uh, income and alternatives. So we've been doing that. So we've been adding income, buying core names uh, at, at, at good prices, right? So your staples, like for us, it's, it's like your Microsoft, it's like your Apple, your your uh, your Amazon, your Alphabet. Uh, so whatever those core names to you are, you know they're they're still at a decent price uh, relative to you know last year or, or the year before. But then these high conviction themes. So we like to buy along themes. So for us, and I'll give you uh, I'll give you an example. We love e-commerce. We love emerging markets. Um, and I'm just going to come with my pick. So Meli Mercado Libre uh, is a Latin American e-commerce play for us. We love that, and we think that it's best positions to take advantage of the growth in Brazil right now. All right. The top play, the top pick there from Tiffany McGee is Mercado Libre, M-E-L-I. Thank you very much, Tiff. Always great to get your thoughts here. Have a nice weekend. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. The markets are higher. The Dow is implied higher by roughly 200 points at this point. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage next. We'll see you on Monday.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 